At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 495th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who actively pursues regenerative farming solutions for desert climates and communities. We're talking with Sara El Sayed about low-tech irrigation and so much more. Sarah is pursuing her PhD at Arizona State University in food system sustainability, specifically on women in arid regions and regenerative practices. She is dedicated to making a difference in her local food system and has co-founded multiple organizations for this purpose. Nawaya is a social enterprise working as a catalyst to transition small-scale farmer communities in Egypt into more sustainable ones through education and research. Dema is responsible for outdoor environmental education, teaching young adults about biomimicry and local Egyptian communities. And Cleola is creating new low-tech irrigation systems in collaboration with local Egyptian clay artisans. Sarah has served as a board member in the Slow Food Movement, an international movement aiming to safeguard local food cultures and traditions by promoting good, clean, and fair food for all. Welcome to the show today, Sarah. Are you ready to rock? Oh, yes. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Oh, okay. So... I would say it starts when I'm very young with my grandmother. So I have an Italian mother uh, and Italian grandmother as well. <laughs> and I was raised in Egypt, but every summer I would go to Italy and and food was a really central part of our life. You know, my grandmother would spend the summers uh, getting crates upon crates of tomatoes to make her tomato preserve that would last the whole year. We would make all the pasta from scratch at home. It was a cake in the house every single day. There was baked bread. There was yogurt made at home. So food has been a really central part of my life. And then fast forward a few more years, I kind of, I got into the education world. I taught for a bit and then fast forward, I got into the nonprofit world and started working in outdoor environmental education. And then the revolution happened in 2011 in Egypt and it kind of, you know, changed all the parameters for a lot of us. And we suddenly felt like this is a country that belongs to us where we can make a difference. And so uh, a group of us that was really interested in food coming from different aspects of it, people, you know, ones who are interested in the farming aspect and the culinary aspect and the business aspect, we kind of came together and we founded Nawea, which is the first enterprise that I kind of created on that topic of, uh, of food. And the idea was, what can we do? Most of us were quite well-educated with either a bachelor or master's degree. 
to try and help our, our own communities to, to change some of the challenges that have or to, to improve on some of the, the problems that have happened over the past few decades. Egypt has a long history of being an agricultural country, but we kind of lost our compass along the way. Yeah. And so this is this is kind of how we started, you know, we started rethinking what does that look like? And that, you know, cascaded in a whole bunch of other projects. But it was really this 2011 became this time of hope of change. And so we kind of took things in our own hands. Cool. So you grew up in Egypt? Yes. I was born and raised in Egypt. And up until two years ago, this is where I lived all my life. I just moved two years ago to join the ASU community, Arizona State. Uh, university so that I can pursue my PhD in, in sustainability and food system sustainability. Why is the food system so important to you? For many different reasons. So one, food is, is essential for every one of us. And being brought up in this Mediterranean kind of basin, so Italy on one side, Egypt on the other, I was raised with food being part of my culture. It's not, it's not just a necessity. It's not something that I need to fuel me, it's not a fuel, but it is a way of identifying who I am. And so it is what brings us together in Ramadan to, you know, to celebrate at the end of the day of a fasting day. And so a way of us to, to, to communicate together, it is a way in Italy to, to know what our roots are. So for me, food is, is, a, is a matter of identity. However, I feel that along the, the way, we've lost a little bit of that compass. And that has really been exacerbated, I think, with an industrialized agriculture system that puts at the focus this idea of quantity and of having, you know, supermarkets that are full to the brim with products, but in reality, may, uh, often are lacking in nutrition, are lacking in flavor, are lacking in story. And I think, to me, it is about looking at the whole system from how the product is grown and who grows it and why they grow it and what the conditions are to grow it, all the way to how it's being processed, who's cooking it, how is it being presented to people, who shares it, and also where does it end? Is it ending in a landfill? Is there immense amounts of waste that are thrown away? Like this whole system is important to be looked at from a holistic perspective. So this is really crucial to me, and I think... What's great about uh, the program I'm um, studying is that we are encouraged to look at it from a systems perspective. And I particularly come in with this lens, which is that food is culture and food is tradition and food is identity. And I want us to highlight this. I feel like this is so important. And oftentimes in the more industrialized world, in the developing world, sometimes we, we kind of forget about that and are just thinking of it as a fuel. Yeah. Wow, no kidding. And you're not passionate about this, are you? No, not at all. <laughs> you live here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, so we were able to get together face-to-face here a few months ago. And I was really excited and impressed with the work that you're up to. So congratulations. Thank you. And you're particularly interested in arid regions. Why? So for many different reasons. One, I happen to come from one of the arid regions. And these are just defined as regions that generally get little rainfall, so 10 inches per year or less. I happen to come from one that only has almost an inch. Wow. Uh, just to give you a comparison, Phoenix has 8 inches and Tucson maybe about 12 inches a year on average. Right. So 
large parts of the world have that kind of condition. Very little rainfall, very high temperatures and radiation, uh, soil conditions that are quite either, you know, low organic matter, low ability to absorb and things like this. And so this is from a geographic perspective. These are large parts of our world are like that and so are pertinent for us to be looking at. But then there's another layer to it. This, which is with a lot of the climatic changes that are taking place with this increase in temperature, as well as a lot of habitat destruction. I mean, uh, what's happening in the Amazon as we speak, uh, the fires that are taking place, uh, does lead eventually to kind of desertification in some cases. And so it is important to know how you can rehab- uh, rehabilitate this kind of uh, environment. So for me, the idea of studying arid regions is one important because that's my bioregion, but it is important for our future if we want to find ways that are regenerative to uh, live in these potential areas that uh, we have destroyed. So uh, this is why this is important to me. Perfect. And you use the word regenerative. And whenever you, somebody uses permaculture or biomimicry, I'll ask you about that in a minute, or regenerative, I, I'd like for them to define it. Tell us what, in your mind, regenerative means. So the word regenerative is used often in many different fields, particularly in in medicine, the idea of regenerating cells and, you know, like there's regenerative medicine. But this is is a different space that that I'm talking about. So if we think of the word sustainability, sustainability means something that is sustained, which is important. You're trying to keep it going. You're trying to maintain it as it is. However... The way I see it is that we have created quite a bit of destruction over the past hundred or so years. And so to sustain something is not sufficient. We need to be net positive. So what sustain means is that you're keeping it at a zero, you know. What regenerative means is that you're adding positivity. You're making it more than just sustained. And therefore that, if we're thinking of it as an equation, would kind of balance out the negativity that we've done, we've created on the on the earth. And so, you know, practices on the farm that are not just about producing food that can uh, feed you, but that can feed the microorganisms and can feed the birds and create ecosystems. So the idea of regeneration is that I'm not just doing the bare minimum to keep it going, but I'm actually thinking of how I can make this whole area flourish. And the whole area being the people that live on it, the microorganisms, the wildlife that lives on it, and then potentially also, you know, when you create these kind of microclimates, you can be changing some of the local weather patterns, keeping moisture closer to the ground and therefore not needing as much water, for example. Yeah. Wow. And when you, you know, this whole notion of arid that we've been talking about, you mentioned low organic matter in soil. And I know that we have less than 2% organic matter in the desert here. I'm sure it's mm-hmm. it's that or less in all arid parts of the world, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously this this, uh, this is the case. However, you do have certain situations that change that. So, for example, in Egypt, we have the Nile River. So the Nile River is this river that flows from the from all the way from Ethiopia and Uganda all the way north to, uh, to Egypt. And as it does that, it brings with it a whole slew 
of minerals known as known as silt. And then they, you know, every year when, when we used to have an inundation, they would come in and flood the banks of the river and bring in this fertile silt that you could then grow on. However, uh, like you can see in many parts of, of the world, including the southwest, you have a lot of dams that have been built up, and we have one in Egypt, and that has stopped this kind of more natural flow. Oh, yes. So not only do you have low organic matter, but you also have natural processes that would usually bring in silt and bring fertility that are also being hindered. So we're really exacerbating kind of the situation uh, in, in many parts of the world. And of course, dams come with advantages. I'm not underestimating their importance. However, we really need to evaluate how they look like, what their structure is. We, we should be at a time where we're thinking of dams in a different way, I think. Yeah, wow. Perfect. And so real quickly, because I promised our listeners, biomimicry. Tell us what that is. Biomimicry is a wonderful field that I think has existed forever, which is essentially looking intentionally at nature and its processes and systems and emulating that and mimicking it to create systems or create products that are nature-inspired, but in essence are sustainable. And this term kind of came into being with Janine Benyus's book in the 90s. And ever since then, it's become a field. And so ASU is, is lucky enough to be one of the few universities in the world, actually, that offers full-on programs, master's degrees, uh, undergraduate certificates, and a whole slew of things. And so I'm, I'm lucky to be part of that group. But it's, uh, biomimicry is really becoming a lot more popular. And the idea is to look at how nature does things and try to emulate that because nature does it in a whole other way. So, you know, some of the simple examples that exist out there are the lotus leaf is a plant that needs to photosynthesize, but it's a flat, broad leaf that sits on the on the water and it needs to stay clean, but it's flat. And so you would think that debris falls onto it and just, you know, creates a layer of dust on top of it. However, what happens is because of the morning dew or because of some of the rains that exist, what happens is that it's actually the water collects these particles and easily removes them from, from the leaf. So constantly having a very uh, smooth surface. And that's because of its nanostructure. And so companies have looked at that and said, can we create a paint? Can we pre create other products that are self-cleaning inspired from that? So nature doesn't have detergents. It's not there trying to get rid of things. It just keeps it clean because of its nanostructure. So it's a whole other way of just seeing things. And this is just one example that looks at form. Wow. But there, there are tons of examples that are looking at how a whole system works. You know, you have uh, wetlands that keep our waters. So there are also companies that are looking at how can we keep water clean in, in our house and bring it back and cycle it in using inspirations from wetlands, so on and so forth. So the idea of biomimicry is let's go out there and see how nature has done this for the past 3.8 billion years and learn from it. Cool. And yeah. you, you also <laughs> mentioned products. And really the reason I wanted to connect with you today is for your product called Clayola. First of all, it's a brilliant name. I love that name. Tell us about <laughs> what Clayola is and what your intent is with the organization. Clayola is a reinterpretation of a pretty ancient product that exists, has existed for maybe 4,000 years in North Africa and I believe also in China. And so in several arid regions of the world where... You don't have as much water. Farmers uh, would try and figure out 
solutions. And so one solution, given that we are in North Africa and we do have a lot of clay and we have clay products, you know, you have clay pots and so forth, they would actually dig a clay pot next to a seedling, next to a tree, and fill it up with water and ensure that the plant is getting its water slowly through this clay pot. In Arabic, the word for a clay pot that is about that size, a small size, the size of your hand, is called an ulla. And I believe the word ulla moved from the Arab world to Spain and then became an oya. And then when the Spanish came to the Americas, uh, specifically to the Southwest, it continued to be called an oya. So if you talk to people in the region that are, are familiar with the, with these kinds of farming practices, they probably know what an oya is. But for us, an oya or a polla is not just for irrigation. It's actually a, a pot where you keep water in general. So what we did is we did a bit of a modification in it. We kind of integrated it with drip irrigation system. And so we modified it so that it's a mix between a drip irrigation system and an OEA system. And it's also glazed on the top to make it also look beautiful. So it's a little pot that fits in your, so it's a pod that fits in your pot, your planting pot. And the idea is that the plant itself, its roots start absorbing the water it needs. And so each plant that has its own clayola pod will take whatever it needs and the whole system continues to have water in it. And so you don't actually need to refill these pods. You just need to have a basin that's connected to them that has water in it all the time. And so the, 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 this, yeah, we basically set it up because we were like, okay, I, you know, I travel for a week or a couple of weeks and I need my beautiful plants at home to stay hydrated. And so, and I don't want to use a lot of energy. So we came up with this low-tech irrigation system. Specifically, like the, the main brain behind this is my partner, Rami Halim, who's still in Egypt. And he's kind of like the upper hand on the, on the business. I'm, now that I'm here, I have a little bit less work than he does. Wow. So essentially, this is a clay pot that you put in next to the plants in the dirt that seeps out and over time it drips out water. Exactly. So it is a pod that kind of looks it's a tapered pod, so it's as if it's a cup that you're inserting the soil, but it's tapered. And then it's closed from the top and has the tubes of an irrigation system. The whole thing is glazed from the top so that water doesn't evaporate from the top. But the part that's in the soil is porous. And so what happens is the plant has its roots and the roots start gathering around the pod itself and start absorbing the water that's seeping out of it. But what's amazing is that the plant knows what, how much water it needs. And so it will only absorb what it needs. So it's, it's great in terms of not wasting too much water because the plant takes what it needs and you don't, you're not worried of overwatering or underwatering. Wow. Awesome. And so this really addresses a much bigger issue of water in arid regions, which we, you know, talked about, uh, you know, where you're from, they get an inch a year, you know, here in Phoenix. In fact, this year in 2019, we've only had two and a half inches here at the urban farm. Mm -hmm. So this is really addressing a much bigger problem. Can you talk about that? The predictions, unfortunately, are not accurate. And so in the sense, Egypt is predicted to have more rain, but more erratic rain. So 
As you know, here, uh, this is more of a, a tropical area where you have monsoonal rains. And so what we're used to here is that most of the farmers that are growing, growing on a, on a cycle, depend on these heavy monsoonal rains that come in the summer. And that kind of becomes like the big uh, push forward for certain crops. However, with the changes in climate, we don't actually know if that's going to continue to be the same patterns, whether they're going to continue to stay or not. Like I was saying, Egypt, a country that is currently receiving about one inch of rain a year, it's predicted to have more, but it's not necessarily coming in at the times where we want the rain. It might be coming in when the fruits are flowering. And so rains come down really heavy and the, uh, and the flowers actually fall. And so they never developed into a fruit. Sorry, I meant the trees are flowering. And so with the rains, it would harm the flower and it fall down and would never develop into a fruit. Yeah. So the, the challenge right now is the fact that we don't actually know what the rains are going to look like. Which is quite a challenge. <laughs> right, yeah. Because, you know, I, I know here in Phoenix, we really rely on our monsoon rains, which we've essentially gotten none of this year so far. Mm-hmm. Well, that is awesome. Thank you for, first of all, doing that and creating them and, you know, and, and bringing this technology to the world. I absolutely love it. And tell us, where do we find out more information about Clayola? And if somebody wants to get some, how do we get them? Perfect. So we have a website called ClayolaEgypt.com, and that's spelled Clay, P-L-A-Y-O-L-A, Egypt, E-G-Y-P-T.com. And there you can see a video about uh, how it actually works, and you can see a lot of great pictures. You can order directly from the website, or you can just email me at s-a-r-a-e-l-s at gmail.com. And if you're interested, we also have a Facebook page, and we're on Instagram, so you can check us out, also Crayola Egypt. And yeah, that's how you order them. You just go on the website or email me directly, and that's it. Cool. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. I generally don't like that word failed because I always I know, feel like that's everything. why I throw it in here. <laughs> <laughs> but I always feel like everything's a learning curve. So, you know, I'm not I'm not someone who gives up, but I I I will say that, you know, I pause momentarily like it sets me back momentarily. I always think of it as, you know, like just something that pushes me forward a bit more. But the one thing that I can remember in relation to my my work was a few years back, you know, I I had told you that, you know, there's a group of us that got very interested in food issues in Egypt. And as part of our outreach, we decided to do something quite public. So we did a campaign about local seeds. And we did something called uh, a seed bombing campaign or seed balls. Uh And we went out into the city and mobilized quite a bit of people. We did these great balls of seeds that had in the native uh, types of plants. And we just threw them in all the different empty plots and parks. And then, and it was great. We got great publicity. People got very excited. We got the momentum going. However... Uh, weeks later, we realized that a lot of the gardeners that work in these gardens had weeded out all the ones that actually sprouted. And so they hold on. They a, they did what? They weeded out. They yeah. They thought these were weeds, and so they went out and started pulling out all these beautiful plants that were native plants that we had bombed all over Cairo and took them out. And and it was a disappointment. It felt like you know we had. 
we had brought a lot of momentum, but then failed because we hadn't actually worked with the people who are closest to plants, you know? Yeah. But what it did is that it just, intensified the need to actually directly work with farmers, with gardeners. And so it shifted a, a, a bit of the work that we were doing to realize that the, the people closest to food are the, the, the farmers, the gardeners, and so it's most important to work with them. But it, it felt like a failure at that moment because we had done such a big, you know, we had invested so much energy in getting these 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 seed balls out there and to get the momentum going and so forth. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, really that comes down to education, I guess, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And what do you consider your biggest success? So I would say one of my biggest successes is the work I did with Nawaya and the small-scale communities that we've been working with across Egypt and specifically in valorizing their food heritage. So one of the challenges we have in in rural Egypt is that, you know, you talk to any tourist that comes to Egypt, they probably rarely have heard of Egyptian food. We have tons of Egyptians here in the U.S., but you've probably rarely heard of Egyptian food. Because in a sad kind of way, we're, we're not very proud of our food. It's kind of seen as something that is happens inside the homes. It's a very domestic thing, but it's not valorized as much. And so I think one of the biggest successes has been giving people the opportunity to, to see the value of some of their food and their food heritage and bringing it to new markets, which is something that we did with Nawaya in Egypt over the past 10 years. And so this, this, this is a big success. So it's, it was a series of different things. So the rediscovery of certain breads that were only found in certain homes, but actually bringing them to a, to a local market. I would say this is my biggest success. Wow, nice. And you've done a lot of cultural change work, it sounds like. And that's, I know it takes a lot of energy and that's a huge success. I'm going to do a virtual high five for you on that one. (laughs) High five back. (laughs) (laughs) And what drives you? I think it's pretty clear from my message. I would say food, food and all aspects of it, you know, like growing it, learning how we can regenerate it, cooking it, uh, experiencing different flavors, ways of sharing it, how we sit together and get together on food. I mean, I think food just drives me. If it's not clear (laughs) until now, (laughs) that's my biggest drive. Good food. (laughs) Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Ah, so hard. (laughs) Oh, I know. So many good books. Can I do two? Oh, sure. Okay. So one comes from Wes Jackson, who works at the Land Institute. And I mean, he has tons of books that I'm just so inspired by because he kind of brings in a a few of my worlds together, which is biomimicry and regenerative food systems. And so this book is called Consulting the Genius of Place, an Ecological Approach to New Agriculture. And he's just got a brilliant way of like, talking about how we can change some of the most harmful places of agriculture, which is in producing grains. So grains are the most important agricultural product. They represent about 80% of our food. Right. And he puts together a whole new approach uh, that 
you know, revolutionizes kind of 10,000 years of agriculture in the grain world. So I really recommend this. It's a really interesting book, and it's a lot of fantastic research that they've done. That's one. Cool. And then another one that I really love is by another researcher, but this one is a microbiologist. His name is Rob Dunn, and it's called Never Out of Season, How Having the Food We Want When We Want It Threatens Our Food Supply and Our Future. Again, a really interesting kind of historical narrative, scientific narrative of some of the most important foods that we have on our table today from, you know, bananas to cacao to coffee to some of the most important great products and their history and their trajectory and why we should not just have all these foods all the time and what it means to our planet, actually. So it's a really, really interesting read, too. They're both you know, agriculture and food books. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, and a little bit of research base too. Cool. But they're easy reads. They're not, they're not scientific. So they, they are scientific in the sense that there's science in them, but they're easy reads. Cool. And if you had one final piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? It would be to get off the phone and get together and be together, practice generosity Share food with strangers, grow a community garden, just be human beings together. I feel like we are missing a lot of that right now. We've become a technological world which is driven by social media and and so forth. I mean, even the podcast is, is one of them, but maybe listen to them together. You know, I, yeah. I love taking my kids in the car and listening to podcasts and then discussing them, but I feel like we... We need to share a little bit more and practice a bit more generosity. We need to be interfacing together. Food is a good way of doing that. Yeah, when you started sharing about that, I had this picture recently in my mind. I was at a restaurant, and there were two couples sitting at a table. All four of them were sitting there (laughs) playing on their phones and not paying attention (laughs) to each other. And it's like I just shake my head, smack myself, and say, oh, what are we getting into? Exactly, yeah. And and at the end of the day, people are on their phone because they actually want to interact with others. Like that's like the social media is that you're interacting yeah. with other people, right. you know. And so let's let's just do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Sarah. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. And how can our listeners find you and find Cleola? So Cleola has a website called CleolaEgypt.com. And if someone wants to just reach out to me and ask me for any questions for Cleola, Nawea, or regenerative food systems, just shoot me an email. Uh, my email is sarah, S-A-R-A-E-L-S, at gmail.com. Excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Cleola. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.